Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or Zepbound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is an apostrophe podcast production. We regret to inform you, The Rejection Podcast. From 1992 until 1998, every show I put on flopped. No one showed up and I lost all my money. I wanted to give up. Tyler Perry. When Emmett Perry Jr. was five years old, his mother would bring him along to her weekly bridge nights with the girls. It was the mid-70s in New Orleans. Oppressive heat, sizzling crawfish, and Bo Diddley filled the air. And on those Friday nights in the projects, while one of his mother's friends dealt the cards, Emmett would sit underneath the table on the concrete floor, playing with matchbook toys and covering his ears. He later said this was no card game for proper ladies, but rather a table full of sharp-witted, drinking, smoking, laughing, cussing, strong women. But every once in a while, Emmett noticed the blues in the room wasn't only coming from the radio. The smoke and laughter veiled a sadness that peeked through in the lulls, the women often swapping war stories of the hardships and pain in their lives. Some that would break your heart. But inevitably, one of the girls would crack a joke and lighten the mood again, 
and it was back to laughter, irreverence, and B.B. King. Later that night, when the card game was over and young Emmett and his mother returned home, they were inevitably confronted by their own hardships. Emmett Perry Sr. would be there waiting for them. And on weekends, when he didn't have to get up early the next morning or pull himself together for work, he'd drop the functioning from functioning alcoholic. Emmett later described his father as someone whose answer to everything was to beat it out of you. And after a violent confrontation about where they'd been that night, young Emmett would walk into his mother's bedroom and sit with her in her pain. At just five years old, he didn't yet have the understanding or the skills to talk to her. But he remembered how the ladies at her bridge game would bridge their sadness with laughter. So he started putting on skits for his mother, imitating her friends and retelling their jokes. And eventually, through her tears, she would smile. That's when he realized the only antidote to suffering was a sense of humor. That group of sharp-witted, drinking, smoking, cussing, strong women would unknowingly become a guiding light for Emmett. And one day, his meal ticket. The following decade saw the Perrys sink deep into poverty and deeper into a cycle of abuse. Emmett's mother was a preschool teacher and his father a subcontractor, neither bringing in enough money to support their family of six. They couldn't afford luxuries like going out to restaurants, going to the movies, trips, or vacations. So in his spare time, Emmett would read and draw something his father looked upon with disdain. In his eyes, creativity was a weakness. Men worked with their hands. As he entered his teen years, Emmett said living with his dad became a living hell. On top of the violence, Emmett also suffered years of psychological torture at the hands of his father and would seek refuge in hiding spots, like underneath the house or at his aunt's. And when he couldn't escape physically, he would escape in his mind. Emmett had a vivid imagination, one he could tap into at a moment's notice. So when his father would lunge at him in a fit of drunken rage, Emmett could escape mentally to the park, a place he'd gone to before with his mother and felt happy. Imagining himself on the jungle gym, free of pain and fear, became survival. And when he turned 16, Emmett Perry Jr. decided when he couldn't distance himself physically or mentally, he would do it in the only remaining way within his power. His name. As soon as it was legal, he decided not to be the Emmett Jr. to his father's senior, and changed his name to Tyler. One day, while he was walking to school, Tyler Perry saw an elderly gentleman standing on the sidewalk, calling for someone to help him cross the street. Passersby ignored the man and avoided eye contact. But Perry walked over to him, gave him his arm, and helped him cross. It was a small moment in Perry's day, but later when he reflected back, he realized that in pulling his mother out of her sadness, he was doing the same thing for her that he'd done for that man. 
he was extending an arm and helping her cross. School was another welcome escape for Perry. But as he got older, that fact began to change. One day, Perry's teacher asked the class what they wanted to be when they grew up. Most kids said they wanted to be a teacher or a preacher. But Perry piped up confidently and said he wanted to be a businessman and a millionaire. The teacher stopped his lesson, looked at Perry and said, You're never going to achieve that because you're poor and you're black. It's not going to happen. Throughout his junior and senior years of high school, Perry's interest in school began to deteriorate. He became dark and withdrawn. He began experimenting with self-harm. He became violent, and eventually, he even tried to take his own life. Then, Perry was kicked out of school. He was broken, alone, miserable, and later said he made everyone else around him miserable as well. He felt shackled by his circumstances. No one was telling him he could break the cycle. No one was encouraging him to fly. No one was helping him cross. Defeated, he turned on the television and caught an episode of The Oprah Winfrey Show. Perry watched Oprah every day at 3 p.m., but that day in particular, it was as if she was speaking directly to him. She was doing a segment on journaling, and in it, she encouraged viewers to write down their thoughts and feelings on paper, especially when times are tough, saying that the process was cathartic. Perry didn't know what catharsis meant, so first he grabbed a dictionary. Then he grabbed a diary and poured onto the pages everything he had been bottling up for years, the abuse, the fear, and the shame, until he held in his hands a spiral-bound collection of letters to his younger self. But interestingly, he didn't write them out like typical diary entries. Instead, he composed his letters like scripts, with plots, dialogue, and complex characters. And as it turned out, Oprah was right. The process was cathartic, and Perry realized that through writing, he could help himself cross. Cross from negativity and helplessness into a place of empowerment, and maybe even cross over into a new chapter. One day, a friend of Perry's came over and flipped through some of the pages in Perry's journal. He was amazed it told a heartbreaking yet compelling story. That's when the friend turned to Perry and said, this would make a great play. At age 21, Perry left his parents' house and left Louisiana, heading seven hours out of his father's reach to Atlanta, Georgia. He figured if he was going to try to prove his teacher wrong anywhere, it was a big city with a large population of successful African-Americans. When he got there, he started working odd jobs, including a bill collector and used car salesman. But he wasn't great at either. One day, a school teacher who reminded him of his mother came to the dealership to buy a used car. She had saved all her money and had her eye on one vehicle in particular. 
but Perry knew it was a bad car and a bad deal and didn't have the heart to talk her into it. So instead, he talked her out of it. His boss found out, and suffice to say, there's a reason Perry calls himself a one-time used car salesman. Perry also worked as a janitor at a hotel. And one week, he heard that Oprah Winfrey was staying there. He found out which room number was hers and vacuumed the hallway outside her door over and over, hoping she'd emerge and he could tell her what an inspiration she'd been. Eventually, he caught her leaving to check out, and all he could muster up was to ask for her autograph. She happily signed a piece of paper with a big O, and Perry was over the moon. Perry was barely affording rent in his roach-infested apartment, so extracurricular activities were out of the question. But he was intrigued by the theater, so he'd walk down to the local playhouse and wait for theatergoers to step out at intermission for a smoke break. And after 15 minutes, when they filed back inside, he'd sneak into the crowd and find an empty seat. Perry saw the second acts of many wonderful plays. But every time he got home afterward, he'd think, I could write it better than that. He remembered what his friend had said about his journal entries. So Perry pulled out his notes and started writing his own play. He called it, I Know I've Been Changed. I Know I've Been Changed was a gospel musical that told the story of two adult survivors of child abuse who use faith to find forgiveness. The subject matter was heavy, but Perry had tucked his mother and her friends bridge-playing, quick-witted, cussing, outrageous sense of humor into his back pocket. And those voices allowed him to write a play that told real stories about real people, using humor as an anesthetic. By 1992, Perry's script was complete. While he was writing, he had saved every cent he had made from his odd jobs and lived as frugally as possible until he had amassed a total of $12,000. He took that $12,000 and put it all straight into the production. Perry rented a theater, hired actors, made sets, found costumes, held rehearsals, and printed flyers. He even starred in the play himself. He knew it would be a huge success. He knew he'd draw 1,200 people over the course of the weekend, which would make him a cool $20,000. And he knew that amount of money would be enough to help his mother retire. Then came opening night. Perry was giddy. But before the curtain went up, he peeked out into the audience and saw 30 people. 30 people had shown up to watch his play, and he knew them, every single one of them. The next night, even fewer people showed up. And eventually, the play he had envisioned selling out night after night was hemorrhaging money, and the curtain had to come back down. Perry had invested his life savings into the production and lost it all. He couldn't make his rent, which was already three months behind, and was evicted. He'd have to live in his tiny two-door subcompact Geo Metro. 
But over the coming months, he couldn't afford his car payments either. The bright blue Geo Metro was repossessed, and Tyler Perry became homeless. Hold that thought. We'll be right back. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. That's greenlight.com ACAST. Tyler Perry felt crushed. He didn't understand. His play was supposed to work. He had prayed for it. It was supposed to sell out. He was supposed to be able to support his mother and allow her to retire. It was a good plan. It was supposed to work. He had nowhere to live, no car to drive, no steady job, and no college degree. But there were two things he did have an all-consuming passion for this play, and a drive to help his mother. So Perry picked himself up off the sidewalk and decided to try again. In 1993, Perry set out to put on the exact same show. He got a job in construction, then as a waiter, then a bartender, for another year. What could have gone to rent went to his savings, and instead, he stayed in homeless shelters or pay-by-the-week hotels when he got desperate. When it came time to put on the production, he asked his boss at his job du jour for time off. Naturally, his boss said absolutely not, because Perry had only just started working there. But Perry later said he knew in his heart that those odd jobs were just placeholders and catalysts to further his destiny. So he quit, 
took all his money and put on I Know I've Been Changed for a second time. But only a handful of people showed up. Perry was mortified. The next year in 1994, Perry put on his play a third time. He quit his job, put every penny he had earned that year into the production, and again, no one showed up. In 1995, 1996, and 1997, Tyler Perry put on the exact same play over and over and over again and never made a single dollar. For six years, he failed miserably. And by 1998, he decided it was time to give up and walk away. What had felt like the universe pushing him to make this play now felt like a giant neon stop sign telling him it was never going to happen. He could have paid for college three times over with the money he'd lost. Perry called his mother distraught. She told him it was clear he would never make it as a playwright and to march down to the phone company and get a stable job, making $350 a week, plus benefits. Defeated and rejected and with nowhere to go, Perry had all but surrendered. If insanity was trying the same thing over and over, expecting a different result, he was certifiable. He didn't want to work at a phone company, but he didn't want to be homeless either. He couldn't get his mother's words out of his mind. The person who was supposed to believe in him most was telling him to give up. It felt like a knife to the heart. Perry was bleeding out and no one was jumping in to save him. Then he got a letter. It was from someone who had seen his play, detailing how the story really touched and moved them, and in fact, how it had changed their life. And that's when it hit Perry like a freight train. Telling a story about survivors of child abuse wasn't just a catharsis for Perry or a means of supporting his mother. It was bigger than that. The play had healing powers for other people, not only survivors of abuse, but hard topics like rape, HIV, AIDS, divorce, addiction, suicide, and heartbreak. Survivors of the human experience. He said it was for people who couldn't afford therapy or to take time off work to sort through their traumas. People who couldn't pop over to the country club and play a round of golf to clear their head people who saw the play and saw themselves. Suddenly, Perry's intention changed from helping himself to helping other people cross. That thought re-energized him. He said he started to live in purpose and on purpose. Perry had begun to doubt the universe's plan for him, but the sea parted in that letter, and almost involuntarily, he set the plans in motion for one final show. This time, Perry would do things differently. He hired local celebrities. He went to churches to talk to the very people the hard topics in his play plagued most. African-American women like his mother and her friends. He listened to them and reframed the theater-going experience from a luxury to an extension of church. Instead of telling people what the play was about, he told them what it stood for. Healing, faith, 
and forgiveness. He booked the 2,500-seat House of Blues in downtown Atlanta. And in the summer of 1998 came Perry's seventh opening night. Perry stood inside the theater getting ready for his performance. He was more anxious than he'd ever been when he took a peek out the window of his dressing room. A crowd had gathered around the theater's entrance, and there was a lineup for tickets that stretched around the block. Perry couldn't believe it. That night, he sold out the House of Blues. And the next night, and the next night, and the next night after that, for eight nights in a row. Soon there was so much demand to see I Know I've Been Changed that they moved the production to the bigger and renowned Fox Theater in Atlanta, a venue with a capacity of nearly 5,000, where it also sold out. Critics started raving about his creation, and soon Perry decided to take his show on the road. He booked and sold out theaters across the southern and eastern United States, focusing on Black-owned or Black-loved venues in cities like New York, Chicago, and Dallas, sometimes selling 30,000 tickets in a single weekend. Tyler Perry quickly became a household name across the eastern seaboard. Letters started pouring in telling Perry what a profound effect his words had on people's lives, sharing the relief his audience felt that someone was finally telling their stories. That's when Perry realized he needed a better way to talk to his fans than the Postal Service and decided he should take advantage of this newfangled thing called email. He started collecting email addresses of all the people who came to his plays or wrote him letters. And after two years of touring I Know I've Been Changed, Tyler Perry had amassed millions of email addresses and millions of dollars his now ailing mother was able to retire. And the long, cold nights Perry had spent homeless over the last seven years became a distant memory. With the major success of his first play, doors began to swing open for 30-year-old Perry. Soon, he was commissioned to write other shows, including one called Woman Thou Art Loosed, about a female survivor of rape and abuse, which, within five months, raked in $5 million. By the year 2000, Perry's name alone had the power to draw a crowd. So he came out with a new play titled I Can Do Bad All By Myself. It told a story of divorce and family dysfunction, Yet, like his first play, was also peppered with humor. But one thing about this show was brand new. It featured a character called Medea, a contraction of the words mother dear. Perry describes Medea as a God-fearing, gun-toting grandma, the six-foot-six New Orleans-born matriarch of the fictional Simmons family and a sharp-witted, drinking, smoking, cussing, strong woman. Oh, and she was played by Perry in drag. 
When Perry wrote Medea's lines, he tapped into the conversations his five-year-old self heard from underneath his mother's bridge table. A mix of wisdom and hilarity, topped off with a little crazy and a bad wig. Medea became an instant fan favorite, so much so that she spawned multiple subsequent plays, including Diary of a Mad Black Woman, Medea's Family Reunion, and Medea's Class Reunion. Soon, Perry couldn't walk down the street in Atlanta without hordes of gushing fans wanting Medea's autograph. And 13 total plays later, according to Forbes, Tyler Perry had made over $100 million in ticket sales, $30 million in DVDs of the performances, and another $20 million in merchandise. That's when he realized maybe it was time to take his talents west to Hollywood. When Perry arrived in Los Angeles, it was, let's just say, humbling. No one knew the name Medea, and no one knew the name Tyler Perry. No one but one single television assistant. An assistant for Chuck Lorre at the time, the famed creator of hit sitcoms Dharma and Greg and Grace Under Fire, had seen Perry's plays and suggested to his boss that they take a look at turning them into a series. It was a lucky in. But the networks rejected the idea outright. They didn't get the whole Medea thing and pushed Lori to take on a new series called Two and a Half Men instead. Two and a Half Men went on to make Lori hundreds of millions of dollars. Perry, on the other hand, would remain a Hollywood Z-lister. With no other leads, he retreated back to Atlanta. But true to form, Perry wasn't going to give up. He had been underestimated before, and he knew it wouldn't be the last time. Perry sat down and came up with the idea for a television show of his own. In a Hollywood landscape that told mostly white stories, this one told the story of an African-American family called The Pains, a multi-generational household dealing with dysfunction and substance abuse. But, as always, seasoned with Perry's signature comedy. Perry then rented a dubious warehouse in Atlanta and used it to stage and shoot his first episodes. He was proud of his creation. For someone with zero television experience, it was actually pretty good. So he hopped on a plane and flew his episodes across the country back to Los Angeles. As it turned out, over in Tinseltown, two struggling television networks called UPN and WB were in the process of merging to create a brand new network called The CW. And The CW was desperate for immediate content. Enter Tyler Perry. Perry appeared at their doorstep having already shot and produced 10 complete episodes of his series. So when he pitched the show to the CW executives, they were just relieved to have content that could go to air straight away. So Tyler Perry's House of Pain was broadcast on the fledgling network. And almost overnight, 
the show pulled in a viewing audience that surpassed even Perry's expectations. Soon, bigger networks wanted in, and cable channel TBS offered Perry $200 million to produce 90 more episodes. Perry gladly accepted, and House of Pain went into syndication after just one year becoming the highest-rated first-run syndicated cable show of all time. With Perry's overnight television success, he wanted to explore making movies too, specifically Medea movies, starting with Diary of a Mad Black Woman. The DVD versions of his plays had earned him a cool $30 million already, and he knew Six Foot Six Medea was born to fill a 30-foot screen. Perry brought the idea to Hollywood executives, but they were completely uninterested. One even adding, black people who go to church don't go to the movies. But Perry had already been told that black people who went to church didn't go to the theater either and had $100 million to his name that proved otherwise. Then, finally, he got a bite. It was major studio Fox Searchlight. They said they'd produce Diary of a Mad Black Woman so long as Perry made any changes they wanted to the script. But Perry was not in the business of editing his stories or giving anyone else control over his content. So he walked away. A bold move, considering he'd never made a film before. Then Perry approached the CEO of Lionsgate and proposed a deal. Perry and Lionsgate would each put up half the funds in exchange for half the profits. But Perry would retain 100% of the rights to his content. Lionsgate's CEO agreed and said they'd just be happy if the movie made $20 million. To which Perry replied, $20 million in the first weekend? The CEO said, no, $20 million in the movie's lifetime. These kinds of films don't do those numbers in one weekend. Perry smiled, because he had on his computer the email addresses of millions of his fans across the country who were dying for more Medea. With a click of a button, he could reach more people than a million-dollar marketing campaign. Diary of a Mad Black Woman cost $5 million to make and grossed $51 million in theaters, with another $150 million in DVDs and television licensing. And Lionsgate strolled wide-eyed all the way to the bank. When Diary of a Mad Black Woman achieved mammoth success, the industry wrote it off as a fluke. When Perry came out with its equally successful sequel, Medea's Family Reunion, they called it niche. So Perry made nine more niche Medea movies, which grossed a whopping $700 million. He eventually retired the Medea character after two full decades in drag. Not because audiences weren't still coming. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Perry put on a 43-city Medea farewell tour 
that drew 30,000 fans every week. But it was time to hang up the wig because he had bigger plans on the horizon. Perry went on to create 13 films, including Why Did I Get Married, For Colored Girls, and The Single Moms Club. He created 13 television series, including Meet the Browns and The Haves and the Have-Nots. And he acted in countless others, like Star Trek, Vice, and Gone Girl. He wrote two books about how his faith, along with a group of sharp-witted, drinking, smoking, laughing, cussing, strong women, sustained him in his dark days. After his mother passed away, Perry came out publicly about the abuse he suffered as a child, revealing his personal story to his idol and to the world on The Oprah Winfrey Show. The two became close friends, and Perry and Oprah struck a production deal for her television network, OWN, delivering record-breaking ratings. And Perry went on to produce multiple successful television series for BET. In 2006, with the revenue from his ballooning roster of plays, films, and television shows, Perry did something historic. He opened his own film studio called Tyler Perry Studios in Atlanta, becoming the first African-American to own a major studio outright. Those studios are located mere minutes from where Perry used to sleep in his car when he was homeless, trying to get his first play off the ground. And for that very reason, parked outside what he calls the Dream Building, sits a 1992 two-door bright blue Geo Metro, the very model that was impounded when Perry failed the first time. That way, every day when he comes to work, he's reminded of exactly where he started, letting his dream overshadow his nightmare. And in 2015, Perry expanded the studio to include a $250 million, 330-acre property complete with 12 sound stages, including a near-to-scale replica of the White House to film his hit BET show, The Oval. The sound stages are each named after prominent Black entertainers and icons, including Will Smith, Sidney Poitier, Whoopi Goldberg, Cicely Tyson, and Oprah Winfrey. Those 12 buildings sit on a piece of land that was once a Confederate military stronghold. And today, Perry employs hundreds of people of color to work on its soil, to reclaim the land, to effect change, and to help them cross. day after this episode was written, there was an interesting news item. It said Tyler Perry had just officially become a billionaire. The road to that moment was filled with so much pain and so much rejection, yet Tyler Perry was able to gather up those threads and weave not just a career, but an empire. One of the most difficult things in life to realize, especially in the moment, is that everything that happens to you is preparing you for something down the road. 
the good things, and more often, the bad things. Pain can be fuel. Learning how not to do something is a priceless lesson. Rejection is information. All Tyler Perry's pain and all his failures eventually converged to become his superpower. One of the recurring themes in our series is how small, seemingly insignificant moments can change the trajectory of a life, if you don't ignore them. Like when Tyler happened to watch an Oprah show where she told her audience to start keeping journals. That suggestion got Tyler writing for the first time, and he realized it was something he was good at. When his play kept flopping over and over again, draining his finances, when he was homeless, sleeping in his car, when he was ready to surrender, one single letter from someone who saw his play changed everything. One single letter. It was a turning point. It gave him purpose. As someone once said, passion can make you run into the burning building of risk. Tyler ran into that inferno seven times. But when you can learn from failure, you realize failures are just bruises, not knockout punches. Even when networks and Hollywood studios rejected him outright, Tyler didn't give them what he thought they wanted. He gave them what they never thought was possible. Highly rated TV programs based on African-American families. Hugely profitable movies based on the black experience. After years of being the only black face on sets, he now drives through the gates of his studio complex onto the 330 acres reclaimed from a Confederate military stronghold, past 12 sound stages that are reportedly larger than the ones owned by Warner Brothers, Walt Disney, and Paramount combined, past the symbolic blue Geo Metro parked outside the buildings where he gives hundreds of people of color opportunities in front of and behind the camera, Tyler has achieved a remarkable dream. The New York Times called Tyler Perry the most successful mogul Hollywood has ever ignored. Never, ever give up. Tyler Perry, audience members at his first play, 30. Weekly audience members at the Medea Farewell Tour, 30,000. BET Ultimate Icon Award, 2019. Net worth, $1 billion. Godmother to his son, Oprah Winfrey. The Rejection Podcast is an apostrophe podcast production and is recorded in an Airstream mobile recording studio. This episode is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. Research, Allison Pinches. Director, Callie O'Reilly. Engineer, Keith Oman. Producer, Debbie O'Reilly. Theme music by Ian Lefevre and Ari Posner. Major sources for this episode are listed in the show notes on our website, apostrophepodcasts.ca slash rejection. Follow us on social at apostrophepod. Rate and review our show wherever you get your podcasts. 
And while you're there, let us know of any great rejection stories you'd like to hear. We regret to inform you that this series is executive produced by Terry O'Reilly. See you next time. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.